What we've been talking about for the last six weeks is uh, getting ready for the end of the world. What do we do while we wait? And it's not that we anticipate it any moment soon. Perhaps it will be, perhaps it won't be. But the key here is how we are uniquely set as followers of Jesus, how we're uniquely positioned uh, to make a difference in these days. I wanted to just do a quick review of uh, some of the characteristics that we've described in the past six weeks. I won't read through these. You can read through these on your own. But if if you've ever been looking for a set of characteristics that uniquely set apart followers of Jesus from the world, this is that list. Take a good look. And I always, when I look at that list, I say, okay, how much does that reflect me in my approach to living every day, let alone uh, perhaps end of world stuff? Last week, Pastor Chuck was up here and thought he did a great job of addressing the final judgment and uh, the eternal implications of that for those who live outside a relationship with Jesus. And um, today we're going to flip that equation and look at the reality of a place we call heaven that's reserved specifically for those who believe and follow Jesus. And this is an old story, but it's one of my favorite stories of a pastor and a taxi driver that both died and went to heaven. You may have heard this one. And St. Peter was at the pearly gates uh, waiting for them. And and, uh, so St. Peter turns to the taxi driver and says, come with me into paradise. And the taxi driver did as he was told, followed St. Peter to this amazing mansion. And that mansion had anything you could possibly imagine from a bowling alley to an Olympic-sized pool and more. And the taxi driver was amazed. Well, thank you, he said. And next, St. Peter turned to the preacher and said, okay, come on in. And he took him to a tiny old shack with bunk beds and a small black and white TV set. And the preacher was a little bit surprised and said, excuse me, St. Peter, I'm new here, but shouldn't I be the one who gets the mansion? After all, I was a pastor and every week I preached and I proclaimed your word. To which St. Peter said, that's true, But while you preached, people slept. And while the taxi driver drove, people prayed. (laughs) Now, it's an old story. I don't think it's that funny myself. But the reality is it creates a picture for you of what heaven might be like. And I'm not sure where you derived your picture, your portrait, your collage of what heaven's going to be like. It would be fascinating to give you a blank piece of paper and some crayons and have you draw your image of heaven today. My guess is we've watched enough movies, uh, Heaven is for Real, uh, Field of Dreams, if you're a baseball fan, that would hopefully be heaven for you. All dogs go to heaven, the sixth sense, and on and on and on. We are fascinated these days culturally with apocalyptic movies and books and as well as uh, different portrayals of heaven. But what we want to begin with today is looking at a biblical composite of what heaven is like according to scripture. And, And honestly, it's such an honor for me this morning, providentially, that we're going to focus on heaven, this new heaven and new earth, just a few days after Billy Graham passed away. And if ever there was the label, the greatest preacher of the 20th century, I would argue it was Billy Graham. You could argue he's the greatest Christian who lived in the 20th century. I don't know. It may be a a reach. But if ever you've listened to Billy Graham, uh, 
heard his message. I, I, as a fourth grader, I asked Jesus into my heart one night after I was watching on TV at the Billy Graham crusade, went up to my bedroom, and I, I don't know what happened, but I said, Jesus, I want you to be in my heart. And I went back downstairs and said, Mom, I just asked Jesus into my heart. At that point, it may have meant more for her than for me, but Billy Graham was a part of my conversion experience in fourth grade. And when you read the, the, the writings and the sermons of Billy Graham, uh, he talks a lot about heaven. And I want to just share a couple of quotes for the course of the day with you. This first one being pretty profound given the topic and the, the recent death. Billy Graham said, someday you'll read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Paul said this. In the midst of the lengthiest treatment in all of scripture on life after death, the resurrection, Paul said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of people most to be pitied. It's so true, isn't it? Um, see, Christianity is truly only a hobby if we ignore the promise and the reality of eternity. When we believe in the promise of heaven, it becomes the most important truth that we prioritize, the most important truth we communicate. And I wanted to just for a few minutes, and we could obviously spend a lot longer time, um, I wanted to lay this foundation of what the New Testament says about heaven. I'm gonna, just giving you six passages. We won't read through the passages, not all of them, but to try to create a foundation for what we're about to discuss a little later on the vision of Revelation 21, which I hope you find to be an amazing chapter. So one of the first foundational teaching about heaven is this. You'll have accommodations there. In fact, there's room for anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus. In John 14, Jesus describes, just before he's, he uh, is arrested and goes to his death, actually. He describes it like this. In my father's house are many rooms. And if it weren't so, I wouldn't tell you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you and then I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you can all be with me in this house with many rooms. Now, there again, get your crayons out and you can portray that house any way you'd like to. Jesus isn't really specifically nailing down the details here. Sometimes that's a little frustrating. This place, though, is to be taken as a literal place. Now, now culturally and, and theologically these days, it might be more and more fashionable to describe this as a metaphorical place, a symbol of something else, a hypothetical place. But in the context in which Jesus is making the statement, it is a literal place. And understand this, we, we here, along with many of you, I'm sure, believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell. These are places not figures of speech. And there's room for anyone who believes. Secondly, relationships will be transformed uh, somehow. Uh, in fact, Mark, Mark's gospel describes Jesus' treatment on the topic of marriage and says, well, listen, when, when, when we get to heaven, we won't be married like we're married here. Now, no wisecracking through this portion, okay? It'll be much, much better. In fact, he says, we will be like angels in heaven. And you're saying to yourself, my spouse is already an angel. It couldn't be improved upon. No longer marriage in the traditional sense. Um, it will be something different, something unique. By the way, you know how angels greet each other in heaven, don't you? This is an important fact. 
You know what they say? Halo. Hey, it's the best I can do. Third, all things are renewed. All things will be renewed. This statement is a fascinating statement. Jesus is making this statement in the light of this conversation with his disciples. Disciples are saying, we've left everything for you. What's in it for us? Jesus says, well, you'll occupy a unique place in another place at another time. And so then he says this in Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, at the renewal of all things, not the replacement of all things, but when things are totally and absolutely and finally renewed. One of the great debates about heaven is whether it's somewhere in another sphere, another plane, or it becomes part of the planet as it it restores and perfects the planet as it was originally intended to be. Perhaps something like paradise at the renewal of all things. Fourth, there's an immediate reward of heaven upon death. And this is that scene in Luke 23. Jesus is literally hanging on a cross nearing the end of his life, and there's a criminal hanging on the cross next to him to whom Jesus says, the criminal says first, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somewhat of a deathbed confession, if you will. And Jesus answers with these words, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, Symbolically today, hypothetically you'll be with me. Uh, Metaphorically, no, today. Jesus in the flesh, Jesus the God-man, is speaking to the criminal hanging next to him near the end of both of their lives, and it's today. immediately upon the passing of life or at the return of Jesus, we're ushered into the presence of God. And then fifth, there's a promise of resurrected bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, it is the definitive statement about uh, what happens after we die. It's one of the longest chapters in the entire New Testament. Obviously, it's an important teaching. And the promise of a resurrected body, it's it's a significance that we know that after death, we will be raised from the dead and transformed into some form of resurrected body, the bodily resurrection. And then last, uh, that Christ's followers' ultimate home is heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, says Paul. There's an old gospel spiritual that makes the claim, this world is not my home, I'm only passing through. And believe it or not, our time here is only temporary, but it reframes our understanding of what really matters. Heaven is ultimately where we really belong. And I'm convinced uh, that's part of Dave Bolster's strength. You know, Dave has a strong faith to face whatever takes place tomorrow, but he knows beyond the shadow of a doubt where he's heading for eternity. See, you can't kill people like us. Historically, Christians don't die, they just pass into a new relationship with God in his very presence. I was, I came across an article, a Rolling Stone article, where the author interviewed Stephen King, who, if you know anything about Stephen King, has spent a lot of his career writing and producing movies about death. And the interviewer asked him at this point, from a departure from the interview, do you hope to go to heaven? 
To which he responded, I don't want to go to the heaven that I learned about when I was a kid. To me, that sounds boring. The idea that you're going to lounge around on a cloud all day and listen to guys play harps? I don't want to listen to a harp. And then he said, I want to listen to Jerry Lee Lewis. Now that's his choice. But heaven will not be boring by any means. And it is where we spend eternity. Anyway, those are the six foundational teachings of the New Testament beginning to portray this little composite, this collage of, of what heaven's going to be like. Now I want to go to Revelation 21. And, uh, and, and what I really want you to dial into are some of the specifics and details. And I'll say up front, you can either take this symbolically or take it literally. John's purpose in writing this the Apostle John's purpose remains the same. So let's check this out. We're going to stand for the reading of Revelation 21, 1 to 7. Eva Hale has volunteered to do this for us. It's what we do here at TFRC. We stand, face the middle of the room, because it's God's word, and uh, it's authoritative. And uh, again, try to dial in and, and try to create an image in your mind of what John is trying to pr present to you. Eva, when you're ready. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. Thanks a lot, Eva, you can have a seat. Here's the key phrase in those first few verses, a new heaven and a new earth, that something is going to uh, transpire in which, and again, the, 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 what's cloudy in this whole picture is whether that takes place here on this earth or in another plane, in another dimension. But what he's doing is replacing the old, restoring the old, perfecting the old. And the image here is the holy city, Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven. That re remains the, the ongoing picture. It's coming down, uh, perhaps to earth. And the biblical concept of heaven in Revelation 21 is as a city. It's a place of life. It's bustling. It's active. The throne room vision we've talked about before, we saw a variety of people from every nation, every tribe, people and language, people that are distinguished from each other, identifiable characteristics, and that's our image of heaven from this book of the Bible. Part of the great Christian hope of heaven is recognizing those around us that will be there, those who have gone before us, those that will follow us. And while relationships will be transformed, identities will remain and God will dwell with his people there. 
in an intimate, personal way, just as Christ dwelled with his people, his friends, and his family 2,000 years ago. Imagine being in the presence of God as intimate a friendship, as profound a relationship as the disciples had with Jesus. That's the image of this picture. As sure as death and taxes are here, in this new place, there is no death or taxes or illness or anxiety or mourning or brokenness. Revelation 21.5 said, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. And through the course of history, from the beginning of the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation to this moment and to the end of time as we know it, God continues to fulfill those promises. The fulfillment of God's promise and God's work of renewal and redemption began 2,000 years ago. It continues today. And the Apostle Paul understood this continuum of transformation. He saw the, the, the changes already at work in the people that he knew, the Christ followers. And, and God decided not to wait for eternity to transform people, but the process would be already at work in them, in us, as we learn how to follow Jesus. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And the Bible pro provides us with this blueprint of this eternal plan to allow sin and destruction, the pain and suffering, the trauma and drama for a short time in order to do a greater work of making everything new. And at this point of revelation, in God's plan of the ages, the plan is complete. And now, says John, who writes this book, all things are made new for eternity. Now, let me proceed through Revelation 21 and share with you some more details about the picture that John, in his revelation, is trying to portray. He wants you to anticipate this city of God. And so I'm gonna read again, verses nine to 14. Just follow along and create the mental picture. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, which we haven't talked about here, that's another 50 week series, said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates in the east, three in the north, three in the south, three in the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Again, all sorts of symbolism you understand in this chapter. But the 12 gates specifically represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 foundations represent the 12 apostles. And the beauty of that statement is that the merger of the heritage of Israel and the new heritage of the church through the apostles is blended in this picture of the new holy city, the new Jerusalem. And in that city shines the glory of God itself like precious jewels. Going on, the angel who talked with me 
had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. Sounds like a cube to me. You know how large the cube was? You know your stadia? 1,500 miles wide, long, and high. That's the size of the city. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. What's a cubit? I don't know. But it was 200 feet thick. The walls of this city. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold. Pure gold is pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city, Heaven's Blue Lakes Boulevard, was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. So what's your first impression of the city? It's beyond comprehension, isn't it? Again, some of the scholars aren't even sure of what some of these uh, precious gems were back in the day that he was referring to. But John's first impression, whether it be symbolically or literally taken, is it is an overwhelming place, spectacular place. This incredible wall giving the city boundary and definitions, that's an interesting thought. The space into which only the righteous can enter. Now understand the political incorrectness of this passage is that we would love to believe that all religions, all world religions would be allowed access to this city, the holy city, to heaven. That's not what the text says. It's exclusively reserved for people who serve the Lamb, whose name is written in the book of life, who have made that commitment to Jesus Christ. And that does not sell well, my friends. The holy place in the Old Testament tabernacle was shaped like a cube. Perhaps this cubish dimension of the new city, of the new holy city, perhaps suggests the entire city is the sacred space, is the holy place. And the city of this magnitude has enough room for everyone to imagine. And obviously, there's even people that do the math and, well, see, if the walls are this long, wide, and high, how many square feet uh, using all the cube sides, how many room is there for every one of us? Well, 75 acres, if you really care, for every believer in the history of humanity to occupy a space in heaven. Now, I wouldn't take that too literally, but that's the reality. It's a picture of the place that represents coming down out of heaven, restored Jerusalem. It's the centerpiece of heaven. And whether we all live within that space or live within the, outside the boundaries of that space, all of the characteristics apply. 
It's too big for our imagination to grasp. I want you to think about your most uh, amazing vacation view. Where did you go and what did you see that stands atop all of the other experiences you've ever had on vacation? Uh, That may be tough, there may be a few, but think about that picture. Think about you standing there overlooking whatever you saw. You know, for me, it was Wrigley Field in the cup. No, it's, I'm just kidding. Um, I stood and then I sat on a mountain peak called Katerina in Egypt. And I don't know what the altitude of that space was, that mountain peak, but from there you could overlook the entire Sinai range. And somewhere in that story and in that range was Mount Sinai. It was amazing to sit there at dawn and sit there at dusk. And I will never, it's, it's frozen in my mind. It's one of the most amazing sights, if not the most amazing sight I have ever seen. And it falls so short of the glory I'll experience and observe in this place. It's the city of God reserved for you. It's a glimpse of our future home. And whether we see that vision again, literally or symbolically, it's beyond our wildest dreams. And he goes on, and this is one of the reasons it's such a radical statement in Revelation 21, because the presence and the glory of God is what transforms this city. We sense the presence of God perhaps in this room once in a while. This Holy Spirit speaks to us, nudges us, whatever. That's a good thing. It's an important thing. But when we're in the presence of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and his glory and his presence fill the space, I can't imagine that. Listen to what John says next. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But again, here's that key statement. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This entire picture, however your picture is evolving, is one huge sacred space. The presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit create a holiness that we can only imagine. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Here the temple has not been removed or destroyed, but expanded. It encompasses all of the space we find ourselves observing. And everything and every place is holy since it all becomes the dwelling place of God. And the illumination is much better than LED lighting. This place forever and ever is lit, illuminated by the glory of God. And earthly kings, and somehow in this picture, perhaps those who were faithful in the Old Testament times to God, perhaps New Testament leaders and rulers and rulers all up to this era will pay homage to the king of kings in this place. 
And again, the entrance is based solely upon who believes and whose name is written in the book of life. Do you have the picture? Honestly, it's beyond my comprehension. This is what Billy Graham said. Even when we allow our imagination to run wild in the joys of heaven, we find that our minds are incapable of conceiving what it will be like. This new heaven and new earth is part of God's plan for you and for me when we believe in Jesus. It's that amazing. It's that imminent. Getting ready for the end of the world, you can't threaten a Christian with that because we look beyond this world to the next. I'll tell you what, and you understand this totally, I'm in no hurry to get there, you know what I mean? But I can't wait. I can't wait. Imagine who we'll meet there if those, again, relationships transform, but still able to identify and distinguish individuals. Imagine who we'll meet there those Old Testament biblical heroes you've always wanted to meet. Those heroes, those martyrs of the faith that gave their lives, that are giving their lives to this very moment rather than uh, reject their Lord as Savior and bow down to the earthly idols. My friends and family, you know, one of the things I do around here is I bury people for a living. I don't know what you do, but the only thing that allows me to uh, get through those moments and the grief is to look past the grief into the hope of the next life. And in my mind, I can see those folks already celebrating in the glory of heaven. I've got a dad, I've got a little sister I never met that I want to meet in heaven. And those are not wishful thoughts. Those are thoughts based upon the the authority of God's word. I am making everything new. See, what Jesus more than anything else in the world wants you to do is be transformed today and tomorrow to be part of the uh, revolutionary movement that counters the culture, that brings Jesus into the forefront. But then one day, someday, whether it's the end of my life individually or our lives collectively when Jesus returns, he will make everything new permanently and forever. I'm making everything new is the statement that God offers you this week when you find yourself doubting if you can survive, doubting if you can hang in there. When you get that diagnosis that declares there's really no hope from an earthly perspective. Whatever the drama or trauma may be in your life, he is still ready to make everything new here and now and when that day comes for eternity. So while we wait for the return of Jesus, we can be made new today. And on that great day when we find ourselves in the throne room of God with the multitude of those who've gone before us, we'll be made new again for eternity. Are you ready for that? 
I'm not in no hurry for that, but I'm ready for that. But I'd love more than anything else. I'd love it if you had the assurance that if you died, you knew where you were going. Do you know Jesus? It's making a commitment to him. It's, it's asking him to forgive you of the stuff that we tend to carry with us through life. Ask him to forgive you of that and then be assured of a new life. He's making you new from the inside out for forever. It's the most amazing story we'll ever hear, this side of heaven and on the other side as well. Talk to me, talk to someone if you want to make that commitment because it's not just another hobby. It's about an eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, just give us a glimpse into your throne room from time to time as we worship. Or perhaps as we take that trip to that unbelievable sight that great experience that we know pales in comparison with the realities of heaven. And Father, I would pray too that uh, you go about your work in our hearts and lives through the Holy Spirit, that you transform us, that you make us new here with the anticipation you will make us new again once and for all, for eternity, with all those who go before us and those who follow us. As our names are written, in the book of life. Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for a great opportunity. In Christ's name we pray, amen.